Welcome to Garden Views. Interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome everyone into Garden Views this week. We are going to be talking about cannabis and marijuana and really uh, THC and things like that in the United States. So this is a, a United States based law show. Hopefully it's interesting to folks outside of the United States as well. And to get our definition straight, we are talking about the aspect of the marijuana plant that has THC, the anything that would be considered part of the controlled dangerous substance schedules under federal law and any state laws. Uh, we are not talking about hemp, which you can make from marijuana plants. And to the best of my knowledge, we're not talking about the CBD and cannabis oils um, that are used with homeopathic medicine, unless there's something different in the state. So, and, and that may be the case, it might be, but as far as I know that those, as long as the THC is out of it, it's pretty much legal everywhere and largely unregulated. Um, with me today, because I don't know a whole lot about this, um, Though at one point I did have a medical marijuana uh, card. I let it expire and never used it because I'm a dingbat. Um, but uh, I, because I know nothing, I brought in two folks that might be familiar to all of you. So I have from my law firm of Dunlop, Bennett and & Lowig, and not meaning the one I own, but the one that I am an employee of and belong to, is someone who started the very same day as me and was our guest on the Antarctica show on Garden Views. And that's Ben Barlow. Hello, Ben. How are you? Hey, Jeff. Welcome back. Glad to be back with you. Yeah, it's exciting. This is fun. You're becoming a star. Yeah, a warmer topic this time. No penguins. <laughs> well, sometimes penguins. Uh, well, I, I saw something lovely the other day on penguins that uh, because of the economy, the, an aquarium was trying to feed them mackerel, which is a lower price food, and the penguins were refusing the mackerel. <laughs> they were snooty. It was funny. Um, anyway. I stand, I stand with the penguins on that one. Yeah, yeah, the, peng the penguin in question seemed pretty steadfast about that. Anyway, also joining us is, she is new to Garden Views, but she has been on two episodes of Garden of Doom, both featuring Star Trek. So both uh, the Star Trek 101 and Star Trek 201 episodes, uh, which is really a very loose way of describing those shows, uh, is visiting us. And this is L. Burlington, uh, attorney from Maryland, who is now in Oregon. Um, so I believe you're also an uh, Oregon licensed attorney as well, but welcome to your first visit to Garden Views, but now your third time on My Family of Garden podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. This is great. And and Elle is probably going to be on some future shows also involving taxation because she has an LLM in taxation as well. Smarty pants. So the... Inspiration for this show and this group is twofold. One, Ben suggested it. B, years ago, uh, when Elle and I worked together, she asked me to proofread a paper that she wrote on this topic. And I did, and I gave her some suggestions, and she and I felt that she was a good writer, and she felt I was a good proofreader. So since I got a compliment, I've never forgotten that. So I uh, reeled her in for this. Um, so now you have the, the background and the personal stories around it. So... The, as I said, federally, marijuana is illegal. In some, the states is a patchwork. In some states, it remains illegal. 
in some states, it's legal. In some states, it's merely been decriminalized, which is somewhat different than illegal or decriminalized up to a certain amount. And in many other states, it is legal if you have a medical marijuana uh, card, which the criteria is not necessarily the same for every state. And some states have some combination of these things. So it really is a patchwork, sometimes even between states, um, such as. So we're going to try to untangle that a bit. And I think we're going to start. I think we agreed early. We drew straws and we're going to start with Ben on this one. So, Ben, why don't you take it away? Yeah, I think that you've, before we came on, since uh, Elle's in Oregon now, we sort of touched on the fact that it's pretty fascinating to see what's going on with the law in, in different parts of the country right now, because we have, I don't know, it's fascinating. It's probably maddening to a lot of people, but we have this fascinating situation where um Cannabis is listed on Schedule 2 of the Controlled Substances Act. Um, right up there, to, to remind people, the Controlled Substances Act um, schedules drugs according to their medical use or, uh, or known benefits. So cannabis is scheduled in the category that supposedly has no known medical use and no benefit at all. And so for everyone who's thinking, hey, wait, haven't we been talking about medical marijuana now for about 20 years. Um, yeah, we have, but still, according to the Controlled Substances Act, and that's federal law, there's no known medical use or benefit to anything that comes out of the cannabis plant. Um, if you dig down a little bit more, because cannabis is listed on the Controlled Substances Act and is scheduled, that means that any sort of Gosh, things that go across state lines, banking, um, shipping, anything like that that involves uh, that involves federal law and where federal law and the interplay of states comes together, all of that stuff's off the table no matter what happens with cannabis. So as states increasingly legalize cannabis for both medical use and um, recreational use, which is, I think a more appropriate term that's being used by normal and folks is adult use, um, as it's being legalized in some states for that, even where it's legal, you're dealing with businesses that they can't do banking, that can't take credit card payments, that can't can't do lots of things that normal businesses can do, um, regardless of whether it's been legal for a generation in California, um, whether it's been legal for a lot of years in Colorado, those businesses that are longstanding now can't do some of the normal things that every other business is able to do. And so it set up this weird situation where we have the interplay of federal law and state law and uh, areas where um, uh, the two cannot mix. And so for people who took conflict of laws classes in, in law school, this is probably an interesting sort of academic exercise, but in Oregon and Colorado and California, um, Virginia for uh, medical use, Maryland for medical use, and places that are thinking about opening up um, regular stores for people to buy cannabis or pot, um, it's, a, it's not just an academic exercise. This is a real exercise of, of how, do we, how do we bring money in? How do we protect our employees? Do we have a, do we have a big safe full of cash in the back room? Uh, so it's been, a, it's been a real issue. For those of us who are trying sort of to keep abreast of 
to law and legal changes. Um, it's sort of it's a fascinating area of law. Yeah, Ima- imagine being a postman. Okay, you're in Maryland. You you can carry up to uh, I think it's an ounce that's decriminalized. I, I don't know if you're allowed to on the job. But let's just say, you, let's just say you're coming from home. You you change in the car before you get into your uniform or whatever the case might be. It's decriminalized when you're driving to work. The second you get onto the parking lot, you are on federal territory. And so usually, certainly the time you go into the post office, you're in federal territory. You have now committed a crime. If you are on the Baltimore Beltway and you take the exit ramp onto 295, which is a federal road off of a state road, but nobody would know that you're, it's a federal enclave. You have now committed a crime. You are a soldier. You go onto any military base. You have now committed a crime. So, you know, it, it, it can be very confusing intrastate uh, as well. Yes, there's federal enclaves all over the place. Now, I, you know, I'm not suggesting that doing that is going to turn you into, you know, that teacher and, and Brittany Griner stuck in Russia, you know, with the, each getting double digits of prison time for, you know, similar violations, you know, whatever the case might be. But uh, it is... These are risks. These are risks, and somebody in some circumstance will will pay the price for this kind of confusion. Well, I, I think that's exactly right. And for people who have not been following the issue very closely and don't work around it, it's important to take a step back and realize exactly how on this, how much on the same page. This is probably one topic in the United States today where there is largely agreement across state lines, across party lines of what should happen. I mean, in the United States of America, we only have three states that have no cannabis access at all. Um, If you look at the map, I'm looking at the map beside me, your entire West Coast, the Western western third of the country, Idaho has no cannabis access, Um, but Utah has a medical program, and Utah is progressive in lots of ways, in lots of ways. Wyoming has a CBD low THC program. That's that third of the country. The middle part of the country, except for Texas, which has a low CBD, um, a low THC CBD program, and except for Nebraska and Kansas that have no program at all, um, the middle third of the country largely has medical programs. And then when you get to the East Coast, you have a hodgepodge of low THC allowed medical programs and both adult use and medical use allowed. And and that map's going to be changing pretty significantly um, in the upcoming months. Uh, We were just talking before you started the podcast that that Maryland and a number of other states have adult use on the ballot this year. I I mean, if you if you even drill down a little bit more and you looked at the actual looked at some of the numbers. You have over 43% of the U.S. population lives in the states where cannabis is fully legal. 31% of the population lives in states with a medical cannabis program but restricted adult use. Um, 22.7% of the population live in these states where there's CBD, low THC programs, but only 2% of the U.S. population lives in states where there's no cannabis access at all for people, 2%. Mm. Uh, And when you look at some of those states that you think of uh, traditionally as very red or very blue, when you start looking at the cannabis polling numbers, um, things 
things take on a different hue. Um, for instance, in uh, Maryland has 62% of the population. They're a blue state, but we're there. And so uh, just to, to say something for the home state, Maryland has 62% in favor of a recreational program. Uh, 76% of people in South Carolina, this is 76% of polled South Carolina Republicans approve um, the development of a medical program. 83% of polled Texans approve a medical program. When you look and when you poll Americans all across the board, it's over 90% of voters believe there should either be full adult use or at the very least a medical program. Um, so we're dealing with a rapidly air, changing area of law. But just as you said, if somebody's driving up the eastern seaboard, even now, uh, you cross over from legal states into states that just have a medical program, uh, and you don't necessarily know that. There's no sign. There's a sign when you drive down 81 into Virginia letting you know that if you're going above 80 miles an hour, it's reckless driving as soon as you cross into Virginia. But nobody tells you that about cannabis, that, that well, Virginia is actually, now it would be the, in reverse. I, for years, I grew up in Virginia, and I thought Virginia would be five to ten years behind Maryland or anyone else in approving adult use. But as we know, um, Virginia has already approved adult use with licensing ready to happen um, next year. But we don't, well. Well, they it do, it's a tobacco place. state. Well, you can also grow cannabis where you can grow tobacco. So follow the money. Yeah, exactly. And by the way, I want to say that even though I'm not from Texas at all, I very much approve of more Texans smoking more marijuana. You know, not from a personal experience or anything, but smoking cannabis in Texas was theoretically an experience. <laughs> Hypothetically. Hypothetically. Yeah. Um, it's having enough anecdotal evidence and personal information, Texas is ready for it. Like maybe it might help them like chill out a little bit. Mm -hmm. Well, Al, you've been quiet this whole time, which, which you know, it's is not, is not good on the podcast. So the men have been dominating. So sh show us your might. So mostly where I focus my practice is on taxation and business transactions. So we run, and I say we, I mean people in my area that practice with cannabis run into the same kind of state, federal um, dissonance, but it kind of it manifests in different ways. And the first way, the most obvious, and this is the paper that um, Jeff was telling you about, was about the way it's treated for tax purposes, because... Um, thanks to thanks to the the tax code, which we can thank for a lot of our problems, um, all income needs to be reported, even if it's from illegal sources. And this includes things like bribery. And you know, if you make money extorting somebody, like you have to listen. <laughs> but that also includes sale of illegal drugs, which, in the case of my new home state, Oregon. Um, it's on a state level, it's perfectly legal. Nobody cares, literally nobody. And when you're filling out a tax form, first, the first issue, and this has come up in a lot of scholarly work, but I don't know that it's ever been tested in a court or anything, is whether disclosing illegal income 
illegal, I'm using air quotes, income is a form of self in, self-incrimination under the Fifth Amendment, and whether that, if that were to go toe-to-toe with the, um, with the taxing powers of Congress, essentially who would come out ahead, and I think we all know the answer to that. But the, Al, Al Capone the second, taught, taught us that, right? Sorry, what? Al Capone taught us that, or at least him being convicted. Yeah, exactly. And the other interesting thing about um, cannabis taxation is the way that, well, actually, let me back up just a minute. And so so theoretically, you know, you're operating a business, even if it's illegal, you should be able to deduct business expenses. That makes its own odd kind of sense. And up until a case, I think it was in the, I can't remember the exact year. It was, I believe it was sometime in the 80s of a drug dealer named Edmondson who managed to successfully deduct his drug dealing expenses on his tax form. And the tax court didn't know what else to do. And they said, well, he's not wrong. And what happened was, um, Congress saw that and they said, oh no, 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 no. And they actually enacted their own portion of the tax code, which is um, section 180E, that specifically says even, even like you cannot deduct expenses from the sale or if you carry on in, in like an illegal enterprise, even if it's legal in the jurisdiction where you're operating, like if I'm running a pot shop in Portland, you can't deduct like advertising expenses, salaries, like any run of the mill, um, you know, day to day stuff. And this creates a bit big problem because it's a huge, well, among the fact that it's a royal pain in the ass because the state level taxes are a whole nother ball of wax, but it kind of creates, um, a barrier to um, diversity in the enterprise because you're looking at the the theoretical corporate takeover of cannabis and the idea that you know it's just gonna well I mean it's commodified obviously but it's just gonna be like you're gonna have your big cannabis companies like you have your big tobacco or your your you know four alcohol companies and I've heard that brought up before because you can't get started. And you can't you can't build a business organically. Ha ha ha. Um, <laughs> you basically have to be funded out the wazoo, and you have to. Um, there there are so many rules. Just I have, in a, practice. I have a question for you. If you have, let's just say you're in a in a state where it's legal, or just the medical part of it is legal, can you deduct the expenses on your federal taxes, even in that case, or no? So, but, so, so, okay, give me the but. You can deduct them on your state income tax, at least as long as there is an explicit, explicit provision, which in the case of Oregon, there is, and it actually references the specific code section and says any, I'm paraphrasing, of course, any expenses that you would have been able to deduct had it not been for 1080E, um, 1080, it seems one, I have to check, I think it's, Oh, I'm embarrassed that I can't remember who it was 1080 or 180. 1080E, um, you can deduct it here, and then it just gives you a line to do. So you have to fill up two two forms or two tax forms, completely different, and you might make 
A, you profit on the state level, but in the meantime, you're paying gobs of taxes to the feds. Right. And I mean, generally speaking, if not universally, federal tax rates are much higher than state tax rates and state taxes are often deductible from federal taxes anyway. So it's, I mean, it's a benefit, but it's, it's not, it's like a fraction. Yeah. And it's honestly, I feel like it's, and I could be wrong and this is just my impression of it is that it's less of a thing that's actually going to make much of a difference at the state level and more of like an endorsement of the philosophy saying we get it. Like this is bullshit. So here come to Oregon, you can deduct all this on your tax return. But what's funny is unless you, except when you're a grower or a cultivator, it's different because that all falls into, um, well, most of it falls into cost of goods sold, which isn't actually a deduction. Those are just, there's a whole, there's a whole other podcast to be had on cost of goods sold, but. You can also get agrarian credits in, in certain states like Maryland. Yep. And, and I can't believe that I actually have something to add as input when I'm when there's actually a tax attorney on the line but it's just because I, I actually belong to a group um, the International Cannabis Bar Association and we just had meetings in DC um, maybe a month and a half ago you all got arrested. So section 280e of the tax yeah, code I because I heard I heard 280e so many times that my eyes glazed over that it's um I, one of the other things that makes it, it's interesting that Al brought up the, the issue of up barriers to entry um, for, for diverse, uh, diverse pools of people that want to open up cannabis businesses. Sometimes I think it's easier when we look at these things to take a step back and just sort of look at it as a whole. We have... We have a system of cannabis prohibition in the United States that largely exists because um, of the alcohol industry and and corporations wanting to prevent access to things that would allow them to increase, uh, prevent access to, to things that would take people away from using money on their products. At least that's, that's part of my understanding of our, our history of prohibition in this country when it comes to cannabis. So we have people for generations. I remember... Um, Shortly after I moved to Maryland in 2006, I went to Loyola College in Baltimore and heard David Simon, the, um, the creator of The Wire. Uh, I heard him speak, a former Baltimore Sun reporter. He was giving a presentation on the life and death of American cities, using uh, my beloved Baltimore as an example. Um, but one of the things he was talking about then was sort of the concept of the drug trade in the inner city and how... American corporations had done a good job of relegating uh, a portion of our population to the margins, largely in cities, and relegating them to the illegal drug trade, and in so doing, taking away one of the only viable economic engines that existed in, uh, in areas of American cities. Um, when, you, when you take that and you think about it in terms of cannabis, for generations we've been imprisoning people. Um, for use of a plant that we now are going to tell people because states have realized the tax benefits of allowing its use and corporations are realizing the money to be made. Um, we've told them for generations, not only is this illegal, 
we're going to put you in prison and we're going to let this have sort of lifelong ramifications on your employment, on your employability, um, and on your community. But now that it's legal, we're going to still keep you on the margins. We might expunge your, your record. We might do some criminal justice reform. But we're going to keep barriers of entry that make sure it's easier for well-funded sort of corporate-backed entities to take advantage um, of a lucrative market that we're creating. And if you take a step back and you just think about it like that, you don't have to be a brain surgeon to say, hey, that, that's not fair. <laughs> that's not fair. So some states like Virginia, in Virginia's legalization bill, there was a strong social equity component. Um, that said that when it comes time for granting licenses for dispensaries for sale of adult use marijuana, we're going to grant preferences to people that have past cannabis convictions or to communities that have been disproportionately affected by, uh, by targeted cannabis prosecutions over the past generations. And so people, people really hail those parts of these laws that come along. But when the Virginia legislature changed last year and, and turned red um, and the governor actually, a couple of months ago, July 1st, uh, recriminalized possession of over four ounces of cannabis um, in Virginia, um, a lot of times you'll see that what happens is the social equity parts of those laws that were so popular um, to progressive constitu constituencies as they were passed those social equity provisions get stripped out. It's and also uh, sort of a streamlined ability of corporations to make money while we keep on relegating communities that have been targeted in the past, um, sort of holding cannabis convictions over their heads, even though we're acting like we're not. Right. It's also, I mean, you're going to, it's a disincentive to big businesses also to get involved when the, the regulatory scheme or the legal scheme in a state is subject to an election. So you're, you're keeping the people who are disenfranchised disenfranchised while even disincentivizing, uh, you know, uh, you know, bigger corporations. I mean, they're more maybe poised to deal with it or whatever, but still no business likes to lose money. Um, I don't know, even with the social equity part of it, and, and I'm sure it's well intended and hopefully it's well written, but it sort of reminds me of when the First Nations uh, fought to get casinos on, on their land saying it wasn't U.S. land, not subject to our law. And, you know, there were a few and then they sprung up everywhere. And then, then in, you know, probably 70% or more, you, you find out that, you know, there, there's a there's a local, you know, straw tribe or whatever, but there, there's, but it's really funded by U.S. banks, big businesses, the mob, whatever. The, 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 you know, that it, it's, 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 you know, it's still not causing, you know, the, the great social equities that one we're helping for. I mean, it, it's better, but it's, it's, you know, a lot of the money is leaving the reservations, leaving the First Nations. I, I don't know if this is analogous or not, but when I heard it, I, it, it just, it just sort of felt like that. No, I, I think, I think that, I think that is analogous. Um, I'm sure. Well, I'll have to ask L. It seems like in practicing tax law that a lot of times you're dealing with with fundamentally important things, and you have a lot of people who look at you with eyes glazed over uh, purely when you mention like tax law. Is I I don't know if that I don't know if that's accurate or not. Uh, it's very accurate, which is 
part of the reason why I went to go get my LLM because I knew that with all those glazing over of eyes, that meant that there was an opportunity for me in my career, which has paid off pretty well. So I guess it's less like what Jeff was saying. Like I agree, I agree with that, but I don't think that it's something that's necessarily built into the type of business. It's just good old fashioned American greed. And like, how do I put this? I, I don't, just something from experience, having done academic research on it and having, again, just experienced it in real life, living in a place where it's legal for all intents and purposes, they're all box checkers. Like every single cannabis operation that I've seen, it's the cleanest place I've ever been in. Everything is, you know, spit spot. There's lists, there's disclaimers everywhere like this is a level of care that they exercise that i wish that the average bar owner would as well and to, to your point about taxes it's it's really strange because if you look at it okay so there's a difference between the real and the theoretical at this point and there's you can extrapolate from that but right now it's theoretically more beneficial for the government to let these or the federal government to let these businesses operate in a gray area because they're going to end up paying more taxes, more federal taxes. Whereas if they were, or they were legalized federally and taken off the the schedule too, as you mentioned, um, they would not be subject to 280E, which would allow them to basically their tax bills would be smaller but the question becomes is where does that revenue because that needs to be that's made up somewhere it's like local sales tax um you know investment in the community um maybe more people get into the business so it's a higher volume so that there's actually just as much or if not more revenue because it's more plentiful so I wonder about that sometime because the way it's set up right now, they're having their or they're eating their cake and having it too. I think that's the way it's supposed to be. I think I learned it was that. I, I think it still works. I think it still works that way. But I think that's exactly that's exactly the issue because I I guess when I said about tax law and eyes glazing over that it was sort of a non sequitur. But what I was thinking about was that when you just say two eighty e and you talk about deductions and you, you you talk about banking, you talk about interchange fees with credit card companies and anything like that, um, everybody tends to tune out and not realize you're talking about something real anymore. When you, when you change it around and you say, you know, with the legal cannabis market, there's not a lot of instances you can point to where increased cannabis use, whether it's medical or adult, has resulted in any crime in the country. Well, um, except for armored car hits. Yeah, crime, crime related to nobody. You've never, I defy somebody to tell me that they've, they've read an article about somebody who smoked up a lot of pot and they went and shot up their house. <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't happen. Maybe they broke into a 7-Eleven and, and took Cheetos or something. I don't know. But... But really, I didn't do people, that. I was framed. I told you that. Well, hey, that's attorney-client privilege. Um, 
But when you when you <laughs> look at it. crime, there is increased crime that you can point to um, that's related to uh, legalization of cannabis. But that's not as a result of use of the plant. Um, that might be made up crime where states that are on the border of a state that has a legal program target people that are coming out of the state to try to get them for possession. But the real area where cannabis legalization and crime intersect are all of the states now that are having workers at dispensaries killed and attacked and stores broken into because there's cash on hand. The reason cash is on hand is because of 280E and the fact that there's no banking for these companies. The fact that companies can't use credit cards and instead all of them have an ATM machine inside, um, which it, it, it just boggles the mind that, that people... Well, and it doesn't really boggle the mind because I think people are largely oblivious to the fact. But go go look at, I mean, just a couple of states you can look at. You can look at reports in Michigan, California, Oklahoma, and Washington State um, for burglaries and violent crime that has occurred that you can attribute directly to 280E of the tax code. Um, so now, and I guess one thing that we're going to have to own up to in this podcast is tomorrow. Everything we say could be mooted out. Um, uh, Chuck Schumer has finally, (laughs) finally, I guess Chuck was busy typing in his basement, but he's finally introduced his legalization bill. It has a problem. It has a couple of problems in it. Um, One thing a lot of people won't say is that um, in the marijuana and the cannabis advocacy, sometimes the cannabis advocacy community has been their own worst enemy in getting cannabis legalization. Um, through different state legislatures because there's a tendency to put the to always make the perfect the enemy of the good and to focus on ideological purity to the extent where where any legalization bill federally has to check all of the boxes before we'll let anything go through Um, so you have you have a sector and i agree with them about criminal justice reform but if criminal justice reform doesn't reach a certain level by god they're not going to let any other thing go through congress right you're um, not going to get a single republican to sign off on, on yeah, anything with criminal the, justice the, either sixth or seventh year that the climb act um or yeah it's the it's the climb act that has allowed that has um would deal with safe banking in the in the united states or no say the safe act would deal with safe banking in the United States. That's been passed in the House, um, I think, six times in a row. This year might even be the seventh time in a row, and has never been brought to a vote in the Senate. No matter who's been in charge of the Senate, it's never been brought to a vote. Um, This year, you have the Climb Act that was just introduced. Um, I have, if you go to dbllawyers.com, uh, you go to our blog. There's going to be a couple of posts on cannabis lately. One of them's about the Climb Act. Um, one of them's about inter- intellectual property protection um, for cannabis-related products, but but there are a number of acts that always get uh, that are getting proposed. But some of the things that people don't focus on is that problems in the tax code or the prevention of accessing banking is actually causing some people to be killed or attacked. Hey Ben. Um, does, does this uh, this banking does this? I'm sorry, Elle, I can rant on forever. No, no, I I I agree with you, and I think I think you're getting at one side of a multifaceted problem, meaning 
And this is essentially like a study in what happens when something we use every day is criminalized when it doesn't actually cause harm or harm. We can debate on that or you can argue harm more so than alcohol. And that's, that's the big thing that I always point to, at least anecdotally, like as a DV survivor, like I have never had anybody, you know, smoke a doobie and decide to, you know, throw some hands, right? Like that's always like the aggression is fueled by alcohol and that's, and there's drunk driving, there's all kinds of things. And there is high, there is, was it DWI? I think that's the term for it, but it's not present in the same volume and it doesn't do nearly as much harm. And I feel like people fail to consider that when they're writing or when they're singing the evils of pot and it's like, okay, well, like, I just watched Adam West Batman for three hours and ate a whole box of waffles. Like, is, is that it? Like, well, I think that's, that feels, and I really, I can go on a diatribe about it. And it's not that I believe that everybody should smoke pot. I'm not telling everybody they need to smoke pot. I'm not telling people they don't need to. Frankly, I don't care what you do as long as you do it in a responsible way um, on your own time. Um, but what I do care about is this fact that People are so intellectually inconsistent about what we do in this whole area of, of law that um, it's exactly like when people have their hands on, what is that, the elephant, Jeff, where that people have hands on the different part, they're describing different parts of the animal, sort of, and so you have some people with the ear, like in Oregon, holding on to the ear, you have Maryland maybe holding on to the leg, then you have all of these senator, senators who collectively have their heads up the elephant's ass. Uh, I'm sorry if that means you got to put a explicit label on your podcast, but, but take, take John Boehner, for example, whole tenure in Senate as Senate majority leader opposes any effort of anybody to address cannabis issues. He gets out of the Senate. First thing he does is run over and become a part of a, of a, a cannabis corporation of a, that now he's, he's making, he's making his ton of money off of cannabis. Um, so you have people that won't sort of take a common sense look at what's going on, that we largely have public approval for a medical marijuana program nationwide. I have a but question for you. Have a, controlled, a controlled Substances Act that says that cannabis has no ascertainable medical benefit. Well, that's obviously something that needs to change. So why don't we change it? And also, I feel, and, and you, you, you touch on a good point about how people in positions to make change in this area are just so out to lunch on it. And I don't necessarily think that's just because they don't know or because they're, they're fed competing narratives. It's just the difference between me, like a privileged white woman smoking reefer in her house and then watching three hours of Adam West Batman versus like, you know, a kid in Baltimore city. And, and like, I, I know that's not the whole part of it, but there's also that it's like, if people like me were going to prison for that, oh, you better believe like, you know, rich white lady goes to prison for marijuana. Like they'd make changes a lot faster. I feel take, like take old, take old Republican senators. If those old Republican senators can't sleep at night and you have a half an hour with them where you uh, uh, there, Jeff, Jeff was talking about this before we went on the podcast. There's different cannabinoids um, that, that come out of the cannabis plant. Uh, there's something called CBN. 
CBN, they've learned, has a tremendous sedative effect in trying to get to sleep. Now, you can, you can get CBN out of the cannabis plant and make edibles um, that have that. You can actually leave your pot on the kitchen table and let it go old, and C- CBN will be what's created. But you tell one of these old Republican senators, one of these old white senators, I guess of either party, uh, you tell them, hey, we can help you get to sleep. Well, they'll stop voting against uh, stop voting against cannabis legalization. But then you tell that same person, hey, Here's a way you can get rich doing this. Well, then all of a sudden they're they're all in favor of it, not just in favor of getting rich, but in favor of getting rich while they continue to try to say to communities that have been disproportionately targeted, we're going to hold you responsible for decisions you made in the past when we had this illegal because, well, you need to respect the law. Right. Um, Let's move off the policy part for just, uh, just a that's second. Good. That's probably good you did that. Yeah, that- yeah. Uh, because I mean, we could talk about hypocrisy and and disproportionate impacts on you know for, forever. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm about to start. I'm just going to stop myself. Um, so I have a question for you. Back to the banking thing. Are are the dispensaries or or even a medical marijuana business? Are they able to use like Venmo or PayPal or or any of those Zeal? Or could they use a an app like like an offshore bank or is it just if they're using the internet in the u.s or using that's like wire fraud or or, or. isn't it up to the isn't as far as i know it's up to the the provider um i could be wrong because i realized like this is not quite the same but there is some controversy with only fans because like some major companies like were not willing to support them because they peddled they were selling sex and it was illegal so i don't know if that's like part and parcel of the same thing or i mean it differed about on this well now that <laughs> yes uh, yes ben tell us about your only fans experience <laughs> i don't have only fans i just i think mute. i think the the link is is uh, showing up on your screen right now um but you have Jeff, you can't have some sort of quasi-banking. You can have, if there's some sort of financial institution that is located entirely within a state that has no connection to FDIC insurance, none of the safeguards we demand for other financial institutions, there is some way that uh, the cannabis businesses can take advantage of that. But largely, um, since there aren't, aren't many banks that really can make it by being just located in one particular area and not cross state state boundaries. I mean, we live in a, we sort of live in a global economy here. Um, you largely can't get a bank account. You can't get a savings account. Um, in fact, it's gotten to such an extreme that I, I mentioned this International Cannabis Bar Association of Attorneys I belong to. Um, we have a message group on there, a forum where people talk about different issues that they're confronting we have a lot of attorneys that are having their attorney trust accounts and attorney accounts closed with different banks because those banks are finding out through social media or on the website that the firm is spending any portion of its time advising cannabis clients. Um, there are some banks who are saying we'll still we'll still allow you to keep a account with us, but but that's the situation we're in. That it's yeah. not just talking about. Uh, closing the bank account for uh, for somebody who's plant touching, as we as we 
talk about it in the industry. We have plant touching cannabis operations, but then we have business operations that aren't plant touching, that are accounting advice, that are legal advice for clients in states where the activity is legal. And those businesses are having bank accounts closed because of a connection to the cannabis industry. It's doubly um, absurd. because so Apple, Square, things like that, we, that we a can, lot of those companies don't want to touch it. But the minute, mark my words, the minute federal legalization goes through or cannabis is descheduled, you're going to see all of those companies that have been banning people for a connection to the cannabis industry, you're going to see them run in and take advantage and sort of like a... Uh, like Carl Malone getting a rebound, they're going to elbow out everyone else who has been active in the space. Well, we we can literally talk to clients about any sort of illegality with money in our escrow account, and 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 not uh, have to worry about our, our banks declining us. I've had, I've had that very I've had that very discussion with people in our industry where we've we've talked about sort of how best to promote. Um, sort of the providing of cannabis advice and sometimes people have responded to me that wait that's still illegal and my response is that breaching a contract's illegal but we advise people every day that have done that um our our business is our business is based actually some people would say that the most important aspect of our business of our profession is providing advice and counsel and advocacy for people who have been accused of illegal behavior. Yeah. And and now because of a tax provision, you're going to, I think, I think what you really have is you have people using the guise of the tax code um, and using sort of, sort of twisted logic about what people can and can't do um, because cannabis is technically federally, federally illegal. You have people using that, but it's just words. What they're really saying is that Despite public opinion, despite federalism, that we trump states' rights in every other area. We want states to be able to decide everything for people. Unless that state's going to decide something differently for people than we want people to decide for themselves. Then we're going to have the government step in. Um, so what they really do is they want federal prohibition of cannabis. And the bulwark for people at keeping some sort of federal prohibition, because once 280E falls... Once cannabis is descheduled, the gates are open and you're never going to get the horse back in the barn, so to speak. Um, so so that's sort of that's sort of the last stand for prohibitionists that they know that if 280E falls, if cannabis is descheduled, that then there's nothing they can do um, to make cannabis illegal. So the really only hope is let's let's keep these barriers to entry. Let's keep these provisions around long enough while we regroup and we figure out some way to, to fend off majority rule in the country. And well, we went back to policy. I'm sorry about that. Apologize, but that's, that's what I think. Well, it's interesting that you kind of, you brought up the trust account issue with attorneys, because this is a question that I had in my personal life with, um, looking to get a medical cannabis card and possibly running afoul of um, uh, like pr profession, like rules of the profession. And I actually had one of our law clerks call the ethics hotline and ask, and they didn't have an answer. So there's also like that 
Like, are we as attorneys permitted to use this legal thing? Or is that going to run up against the ethics of our profession? That's another. And that's been... That's been something that's been battled in a number of places. Actually, I was just reading today, some colleagues were writing about uh, about some of those same issues, and they were talking about um, in states where cannabis is legal, you know, medically and now for adult use, some of the most interesting fights have been in the state bar regarding um, ethics requirements for attorneys and what advice you can provide clients. So I believe, and I, I might get this wrong, but but nobody listening to the podcast was probably reading the same thing I was reading today. And so good luck telling me what, what part of it I'm wrong on. Um, but they were saying that, that in the state of Maine, there had been a real battle about um, uh, whether or not attorneys were ethically able to represent uh, cannabis clients. And this was, this was in connection with medical use of cannabis. Um, and I believe Someone made the comment that when they, after the fight was over and, and sort of the ability to advise medical cannabis clients and businesses had been preserved, that people found out that one of the biggest organizations that was behind the funding of the opposition, besides saying attorneys should not be able to advise clients, it was the DEA who was, who was funding, funding the opposition. Um, so I think, and I'm not sure, I mean, maybe I have some of that wrong, but, but one of the interesting things in, in all of these debates is exactly where the money is and, um, and where, who's funding advocacy in the other direction. Uh, because one of the biggest issues, uh, some, of the, some of the biggest cannabis issues we deal with um, as a law firm now are funding, and uh, sort of corporate transactions regarding involving funders and cannabis businesses. But then we have a whole lot of people who the real advice they want is just tell me what's going to go on with the law. Tell me when I'm going to be able to apply for a license. Tell me how I get a, a medical card that my, my wife has glaucoma or my, uh, my grandmother's dealing with cancer treatments. How do, how do we get a medical card for them? What do we have to do? Um, and unfortunately, in Virginia, all of my advice, I've written a number of blog entries about it, but all of my advice usually has to start out with, I'm not really sure, but this is what I thinks going to happen based on what has happened up to now, that everything might change. Um, so we really have one thing for all of businesses, whether it's tax law, whether it's general corporate law, or whether it's the cannabis sector, businesses crave certainty. And what we have in this area is the gray area really doesn't serve anybody well. The gray area is why you have robberies at cannabis dispensaries. The gray area is why we're spending all of this time and energy trying to figure out nuances with the federal tax code. All of that stuff is created because of this gray area. And the gray area is largely based on a, a prohibitionist mindset. Um, and as we know, if you look back through American history, a lot of the problems that we, we had in the middle of the century related to the alcohol business were not created by the alcohol business. They were created by the prohibition of the alcohol business and then trying to clean up the mess after prohibition was eliminated. And that's sort of where we are in the cannabis business, I think. We're, going, we're trying to 
we're trying to wrestle with this idea of how do we clean up the mess we've created and sort of create a level playing field going forward. And frankly, in the United States, we're just not that good at creating level playing fields, whether it's us or whether it's our system in general, we're, we're usually not good at leveling, leveling the playing field for people. Okay. Elle? Oh, um, can, can I just do a brief aside? Um, sure. I just didn't know how much more time we had because I had another <laughs> thing to bring up, which is not exactly related, but it comes out of that whole, you know, patchwork and... Well, go for it, because we're recording. <laughs> and the fact that you can't own or purchase firearms in pretty much any state that if you have a medical marijuana card or a medical cannabis prescription, which I find really fascinating. I don't know about anything other than that. Why? I mean, I assume the theory is, is that if you're impaired, you shouldn't have access to firearms, but then, you know, cannabis isn't the only way you can be impaired. So right. you, can drink, you can drink all the Budweiser's you want and all the McAllen you want. No, I, I, you're exactly right. I was actually thinking about that early, and that's actually where I stopped myself because I was going to say that you, in, in Maryland, it impacts your ability to get a firearms license, a, a handgun permit, if you have a medical marijuana card, which you think the, the, the one thing that is sacrosanct in this country, the one thing that gets people crazy, well, there's two things. Not one thing. Guns is the thing that gets so many people crazy. The other thing I was going to say is high taxes. But even taxes don't be, because it, it, it's just, you know, it can be so incremental. It's, and it's, uh, guns are the one thing that seems to get, you know, enough people crazy enough that it affects everyone. And inflation. Those, those are probably the two things that get, get everyone all riled up. Gas prices. That, that seems to have really, really agitated people in a way that, that, well, sure. that was, but you're, no, you're exactly you're exactly right. It, and and like you said, in Maryland, your medical card. Well, you can't get a handgun. You can still have a shotgun because impaired people, you know, right. impaired people usually reach for the Glock, not not the shotgun when they want to do that. Maybe one way in this country that we can have sensible firearm regulations or firearm safety is we give everybody their medical card. Because that's the that's the one area where we've said that that's that's our that's our sort of standard. But you know, I don't I don't recall. I, I mean, I shouldn't say it because I'm sure I'm sure if I looked at the NRA website, there'd be some portion on it where they oppose uh, medical mar- mar- medical cannabis legislation because that would mean people would have to give up their handguns, um, bazooka, shotgun, safe. That's whatever you want to do. It's, it's, so it's, it, it, yeah. it's really weird to see that interplay. And, and we, I don't know, I'm always fascinated. And no, this isn't, this isn't about the law and it's not necessarily about policy. But one of the things that really interests me about this area of the law, I mean, I, I don't have a, I don't have a long history with marijuana. So it's not like, it's not like I want to do cannabis law because I have this, this historic need to be involved in the sector. It's that it's a sector where we had this weird, just these inconsistencies that you have, you have people who champion states' rights on one side until the states decide that they want to have cannabis legalization, and then we're going to try to we're going to try to um, 
hamper your efforts by maintaining federal prohibition in the banking law. So you have people who champion champion access to guns or gun regulations, but then you have these medical marijuana laws that don't seem to make any things just don't make sense. You just want things to make a little bit of sense in this area. I mean, is that too much to ask for that either in the practice of law or in anything that, that things just make a little bit of sense. And in this area, people can be more intellectually inconsistent than almost any, I mean, reproductive rights we're seeing now. Well, well, sometimes you have to pick, you have to pick which problem will cost you the least. You know, that's what you, you've got to, you've got to pick the, you've got to accept the, the solution that is the least expensive and the least likely to cause you major harm, but is, but still there's risks or problems with it, like being an all cash business. And so now you have to hire, you know, six security guards uh, that are fully armed, you know, uh, all rotations and you have to use armored car services and then, you know, uh, you know, and make sure that they're, you know, they always have a three-man crew or whatever. I mean, you have all these other expenses. There's also, and this is something that I can't take credit for thinking of, but civil asset forfeiture, forfeiture, cannot talk today. And the idea that, like, there has been, I think it was Minnesota, I could be wrong about that, where, you know, a sheriff's department would habitually pull over this armored car company where they specifically like worked with dispensaries and because you know it was legal on a state level but not federal you could argue that it was evidence of a crime or related to a crime and then you know civil asset forfeiture is like a whole mess so I thought that was an interesting little piece of this that I actually never thought of well I'm gonna go a step further Imagine you are in a state where it is legal, but you are charged with a federal crime in this federal civil forfeiture of your legal marijuana farm, cannabis farm, whatever, and they seize it because it's a federal crime, even though it's legal to have a marijuana farm in in state X. Let's just call it Jezikistan, because uh, that's my straw country state for everything. Yeah, I think that's... Was that was the civil for was that Minnesota or Wisconsin? No, I don't. It was one of those. Oh, those what's the things. difference? Okay. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to have to make a confession. I guess it's like like President Trump and the word yesterday. I have a problem sometimes distinguishing between Minnesota and Wisconsin. Right now, Wisconsin just happens to be the wackier of the two, so that's usually how I uh, how I keep things straight. But I remember the civil forfeiture thing. I just didn't remember sort of the background of what had happened. Wisconsin yeah. has the cheese. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 will, I will look this up and, you know, I will I will find out for our, our own edification and then Jeff can do, like, a bonus episode of We Straighten That Out. No, it's like it's like Best in Show. We'll let the folks in the yeah. edit booth handle that one. Just no. Google it. Um, Ab- absolutely, 100%. Guaranteed to do a follow-up. This is, this, is, this is something that I joked about kind of, but not really. Um, when I was planning to move to Oregon, um, I have family here and I moved primarily for them, but also like it's both simultaneously a good and bad time to be an attorney who deals with cannabis out here because on the one hand you have dispensaries on every street corner and it's just a license to print money and the government, the state government is pretty, you know, they don't care. 
They don't care at all. Nobody cares. Like, you know, go to the dog park and smoke a bowl. Nobody cares. And um, it's just interesting to kind of see the difference in practice, how that works, even just the way that um, the lawyers approach it. Like, the lawyers my firm, they're like, oh, yeah, we represent a cannabis business. Like, they just threw it in there along with, you know, X amount, whereas it was, like, its own little boutique specialty, like, back in Maryland. And I I think it's an interesting time to be, A, a tax attorney, and B, an attorney who specializes in business formation and transfers, because it's, like, it's a brave new world. Like, you're looking at a new opportunity, a new opportunity for tax. I would say a new opportunity for taxes. Like that's a fun thing, but it is for a tax attorney, especially. Yeah, I mean, I was speaking to an attorney a month ago that their practice is solely dedicated to patent it, getting patents for genetic material for cannabis plants. I mean, that's that's what they do. That's their whole firm is getting patents for uh, genetic material for cannabis plants. There are other attorneys who their sole practice right now is dedicated to helping cannabis businesses figure out what they can get trademark protections for. Trademark, uh, trademark is, a federal, is a federal beast. And so if you're plant touching, you're not going to be able to get cannabis protection. You're not going to be able to get trademark protections. But... If you can demonstrate that whatever you're trying to get a trademark for is for something that is not exclusively plant touching, or you can get protections for a business that uh, that you can you can distinguish the services it provides that are not cannabis touching, well then some of that stuff can go through as opposed to copyright protection. You can get copyrights for anything. A copyright's created the minute you fix something. Um, in the ether, or fixed it in the ether. Once you've once you've created something, you have a copyright on it. So so you have that intellectual property law uh, in its connection with cannabis is just fascinating. I could have talked to this guy about uh, getting patents for marijuana plants and strains for ages because one patents are an area of law that I know as much about as tax law, and that's nothing. But just the idea of uh, that people were out there. Well, I guess I knew people were getting patents on like rose varieties and specialized plant varieties. But the idea that that's also happening with uh, cannabis strains um, is what I just think it's incredible. It's an incredibly exciting time. If we didn't have this little thing of banks wanting to shut down our bank, our trust accounts for it. <laughs> or, or people wanting to clamp down that that hampers the excitement a little bit. And frankly, we, we haven't run into that in Virginia that I'm aware of. If uh, if any of your listeners know about that happening in Virginia or Maryland or or the district, I would love to love to hear about it. I've not heard of that in Maryland or D.C. And as far as tax law is concerned, you know more than me. I, I thought 280E was a interstate you know road going east. So, well, we haven't even talked about. Um, the wild west of the cannabis world, which is Washington D.C., the nation's capital, that that legalized legalized uh, recreational use of of cannabis, 
but because of Andy Harris from the great state of Maryland, who's a physician, Dr. Uh, Andy Republican, Harris, that he's been able he's been able to prevent the ability of the district and he and others like-minded individuals have been able to prevent the district that had an overwhelming majority of people say, we want cannabis to be legal in our city. You had them take this very, uh, patriarchal. Well, I guess it's always been that sort of approach that Congress has taken to DC, um, about we're not going to let you spend any of your, your funds in creating regulations that will actually allow you to uh, gain any tax revenue from this legalization. So in DC, it's legal everywhere that's not federal property. However, nobody can buy or sell. The the district's not getting any tax revenue. Uh, People in the know would know that back in the day, the way you got uh, marijuana in DC is you went somewhere and you bought a baseball card. And with that $20 purchase of a baseball card, well, they gifted you something. In addition, it might have been gummies or might have been might have been marijuana, but they had the whole gifting culture they created uh, that that was able to develop. But the things that that stayed around were these ideas that we're going to keep relegating people um, who we've historically marginalized in this area. We're going to keep them at the fringes until we figure out how we writ large are going to make real money off of this. And at that point, then we're going to do criminal justice reform. And then, then I'm veering back into policy, but, but DC is a fascinating, a fascinating sort of case. Well, DC is a federal enclave, which is also a self-governing autonomous municipality, sort of. Yeah. Except, except when we disagree with what they want to do and then we'll, uh, Right. right, but the whole reason that it was given the authority is because the Congress didn't want to have to manage it. I mean, that, that that was the whole the whole point. So it's sort of like having your cake and eat it too, but when you have your cake and eat it too, it's like everybody gets diabetes. You know, at first it's a bad cake and it's the least healthy cake you've ever... It tastes bad and it's terrible for you is, is what's happened. It's that's, like, that's what I used to tell people, that, it, that if everyone's headed in the wrong direction, what's it matter who's going faster? Um you talked about when we when we started the podcast, you said about listeners that might be out of the United States and hopefully that they, they find the conversation at least interesting. Well, that's the interesting piece of this, that it's it's easier to get access to marijuana in, in Maryland than it is in Amsterdam. That that marijuana's uh, cannabis is illegal in the Netherlands. Um, though we have this idea that, that other progressive places in the world, that it, it's just sort of like Amsterdam from the wire. Um, but, but no, America is sort of the guinea pig here in how we're trying to figure these things out. And one of the problems, I think, um, a lot of times it's not understood by, by some of our global brothers and sisters, is that rather than look at the United States as a homogenous place, you have to think of the United States in terms of the European Union, um, where no one in their right mind would accept, would expect, uh, the UK would expect, or Ireland, no one in their right mind would expect Ireland and Greece to have the exact same laws. Nobody would expect the Netherlands and Portugal to have the exact same laws because cultures are different. 
beliefs are different, sort of, sort of how things have developed is different. But in the United States, we look at Arizona and Maine, and we somehow think that there's something going wrong when, when people do one thing one place and people do one thing the other place because we have this sort of uh, fiction of, of uh, a unified group of states here. Um, and, and the only thing in this area that is sort of uh, that is preventing that is preventing sort of uh, cannabis to sort of be treated the way voters want it to be treated across the country are what I think are a small block of prohibitionists that keep these federal prohibitions that sort of affect everybody. So we, we, we have sort of an artificially constrained market. Um, and that that's that's difficult to advise people in. Well, federalism is that experiment that allows our arguments to be particularly divisive, particularly loud, and last a very, very long time. Uh, you know, and then it's not limited to cannabis. It's just, it's just the subject of the topic today. But yeah, I mean, that that's why sometimes it feels like a failed state, even though it's the, the richest country in the world. And, you know, I don't know. I don't want to get on, you know, America versus, you know, any place, also the United States of America versus any other place. Um, well, the worst worst system in the world, except for every other system in the world. Who said that, Jeff? Uh, I don't know. The, you. <laughs> hey, and, and you might have to cut off really quick, but one thing I would be interested in asking Al is um, uh, in Oregon, like, like where are we going with all of these things? And um, like when we look at medicinal mushrooms and we look at other areas of expanded legalization in the country, um, how, how do you think those things are going to be? Are we going to be having the same debate or the same discussion about each and every one of those topics as we are cannabis or how's that work? Um, my, my legal opinion or my just observational, like totality of circumstances. Um, I think that at least out here, I don't think there's going to be like a painstaking debate over that because they're already talking about, I think there are, they was it mushrooms. It was some state that um, allowed mushrooms recently, or they were proposing it. I mean, the cat's out of the bag. Like they've already seen like these illegal substances, and with the exception of I think anything that's manufactured, that's I feel like that's a separate debate. Like if you're talking about meth or or something that you have to like go through a process, like an extensive like that's cooked or created. But in terms of things that come from the earth, oh, Oregon will, yeah, no, they'll do it. Mm, well, I bet they don't with peyote and ayahuasca. But anyway, um, you know, there's, a, there's always a degree. But um, I think the Tocqueville might have said the, the, the system part or someone like that. But when in doubt, go with to, to, to Tocqueville um, or Benjamin Franklin. I'm not sure if that's who that really said it. Um I should know the answer to that. I don't. So thanks a lot for that. I'm the one that's supposed to ask questions to that you guys can't answer. Um, real quick, if possible, is there any sort of geographic obvious disparity or is there any red state, blue state obvious disparity? Or is that more, is that more myth? Is that more misunderstood what you would call common sense, but it's not actually factual? This is you, Will. Um, in, in terms of, like Maryland versus Oregon or no, like the North no. versus or, or the North, like 
I yeah, I would I would you know northeast you know southeast Mid Atlantic Great Plains West. Actually, that's not true. Red and blue. It's not necessarily. It's it's at least up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, the attitude that a lot of people adopt is that because it's not as developed out here as it is on the East Coast in certain parts. But parts like if you're like. Portland isn't going to be the same as D.C. or even a city of comparable size um, on the East Coast. I don't I don't know what would be equivalent to Portland because I don't have population numbers in front of me. But basically what I'm saying is because we're kind of in nature and we have more perspective, whether it's the correct one or not, that we're not it, people are a lot more... Um, relaxed about things that are none of their business, right? Like, they're not, at least not the people I've run into or the people I even work with. Even the the philosophy of uh, the law is different out here in terms of work-life balance and, you know, what's important is they're like, well, we live on this earth. We want to go outside and go kayaking and stuff. And not everything is a like not everything is life and death and also we don't have to control everybody for fun and i feel like that's a big part of it i can't speak for california or any of the other western states but at least with where i am it's like oh here's a city in the mountains and then there's a whole shit ton of nothing and then there's another city and then there's more shit ton of nothing so i think that has a lot to do with it is perspective whether it's you know correct or not but it's a, but we don't. None of us know that there's like you know major geographic blocks where it's treated one way versus another. It seems to be a little bit more hodgepodge. Yeah, and again, that that goes, I guess, goes back to beliefs, like the idea of that. Where I like the the idea of like kind of the like a bulk like a Balkans analogy. It's like we're kind of all the same, but we're different in very. Um, like important ways. And Did you say Vulcans or Balkans? Balkans. Okay, well, well you know, yeah. I mean, you're the you're the you're the Trekkie, so I, I you know, I, you're anything close to Vulcans. Right. So Balkans as in Balkanization. Got it. That makes more yeah. sense. And Jeff, I I actually looked it up, and what Winston Churchill said about democracy in a speech to the House of Commons in 1947 was, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government except all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. So, uh... It's Churchill? At least... Right. We, at least <laughs> I just had to correct the fact that somebody's going to listen, thank Lord. Right. I, you know what? I should have known that. But, you know, it, 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 it's fine. Uh, that, that's all right. Good. All right, Churchill, I thought you were going to tell me that you had already looked up an entire state survey and had a 50 state and the District of Columbia uh, spreadsheet ready with all of the this. Uh, yeah, I, I wish. If anybody has that, I would love to see it. I think I am going to maybe tomorrow and the next day. Uh, um, as Jeff knows at our firm, we're encouraged to um, participate in authoring blog posts. And so uh, one that I've been kicking around would be uh, – I actually have one posted either today or probably tomorrow about the live golfers and exploiting leverage in contracting. Mm -hmm. um, but one that I think that I'm going to do is just sort of a short blog entry on the history of cannabis prohibition. So we actually see how the laws developed to, to where we've gotten today. I think um, I continuously say that I think that on all of this, sometimes 
what's needed is to tell everybody, hey, let's take a step back and think about what actually makes sense and what's actually good for people. Um, there are people who who have not had sort of an industry that they thrive in. And I see, I see a lot of people having opportunities now in Maryland at dispensaries and at grow sites um, that have really found footing and are thriving in the business world. And it really doesn't benefit any of us to, um, to not have those people getting good advice, to not have those people paying taxes that they should be paying, and to not incentivize them with the deductions that they should be able to take when you're paying taxes. Um, it's, and and it's employing just, people. Yeah, it's a, conv- it's a convoluted area, and it just doesn't make sense. that uh, save, save all of this rigmarole for, um, for areas of law where, where fundamentally the prohibition makes sense. Um, not something that's been contrived. I, I agree with you, though. I think it would be hysterical if you had people that were uh, sitting in prison for not reporting ill-begotten gains, but while they're in prison, their commissary fund is is getting replenished constantly by tax refunds uh, for for <laughs> for overpayment because they were disallowed their deductions. Um, but uh, it's uh, probably only funny to me. Um, so. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, I thank you guys very much. We're at about an hour and 15 minutes. We could probably do this forever. Um, and, uh, and we could probably have a similar conversation on uh, an array of, of uh, issues that are just as controversial, just as diverse, but maybe, uh, maybe a little bit more raw. And uh, I don't want to do too much raw here if I, if I can avoid it. Um, so, this was cool. I appreciate both of you for your knowledge and your insights. And 280E, not uh, an interstate highway, but a tax section. Uh, I've learned one thing that I'm sure I'm going to forget shortly. I've been reminded that it's a Churchill quote, so terrific. I hopefully will remember that for the next three to four years, and then I'll forget it again. Um, so, Ben, thank you. Where can folks find you if you want to be found? Hey, thanks for having me on again. It was a blast. Please, uh, I hope the guys in the editing booth edit out about 50% of what I had to say. They will edit uh, zero out. I can, I can. And like, like always, I talk way too much, especially about things that I'm excited about. Nothing's uh, being edited. You can, you, can, you can only edit you can yourself find, right now. <laughs> yeah, you can find me and Jeff both at Dunlap Bennett and Ludwig, dbllawyers.com. If you have uh, cannabis questions or if you have general civil litigation questions, employment stuff, contracts, stuff, government stuff, uh, feel free to touch base. You can also, uh, I didn't say it last time, but you can find me at benbarlowphotography.com. That's sort of a a hobby I have, try to sell some pictures on the side, uh, pay for that inflation and gas money. But um, I've really enjoyed doing this. I would I'd love to get invited to one of these Star Trek shows one time, though. That that sounds like the cool stuff. Mm. Well, the next science fiction-based show that I'm planning is Babylon 5. So uh, if you want to get caught up with that one, you're you're invited to join that group. But I am particularly proud of my Battlestar Galactica show. Now, that's on Garden of Doom, but I thought that one was the seminal podcast, probably the authoritative source of information on the reboot of Battlestar Galactica, bar none, anywhere, anyplace including people who wrote and participated in Battlestar Galactica. A little tooting my own horn, but I am being rude to my other guests. So, L, where, if you want to be found, can people find you? 
Um, so I host my own podcast with a friend and soon to be second friend. Um, Two friends show off. It's about the show Murder She Wrote, but we kind of look at it from a legal and social angle. And it'd be awesome. Hmm? I was just saying that'd be awesome. I think this yeah, is We have an entire season that we did, and my co host is another millennial attorney. So it's kind of us watching the show through a lens of um, not who the show was intended for initially. And picking apart the legal stuff, which is actually a lot more complex than you might think. So, um, and other than that, you know, I lurk on the internet, but I don't really have any specific place. So listen to my podcast. Murder, she woke. It's not she murder, woke. she wrote. And I'm sure yeah. Golden Girls is coming up. If you want a sample, you can listen to the two shows listen. that L and Bart. Twelve seasons of Murder She Wrote, and we're only through one. And it took us a whole year, so you might have to check back on me. But this is my retirement project. I, I don't think I have twelve years. So anyway, um, for those of you who don't know how to find me already on Twitter, it's at IcarusFellMD. You can of course find this show on the Garden of Doom uh, feed. This is Garden Views. If you found this show, I cannot imagine how you found it without finding Garden of Doom because it doesn't exist on its own feed unless somebody individually shared it with you. Um, and if you like professional wrestling, I'm on a shit ton of shows for that. Um, and if you do, just follow me on Twitter and you'll get all the information. Trust me, I don't, I don't want to ruin my rep here. I do thank Dunlop, Bennett, and Ludwig for allowing me to have people from the firm on the guests and allowing me to do this on a policy basis um, and to sort of supporting it. Um, not that they endorse it and not that the show is for legal advice. It's for information. I was supposed to ask permission for No. You're, you, in fact, I seek permission for you to be considered for this to be towards your blog credit. It's a, but I'm only told that, that it counts for me, but for everyone else, um, marketing will ask. But I don't know. They, they, they tend to say yes. Um, and listen, I, I, this, the show's as good, you know, as good as, as any of the blogs, and they tend to be 45 minutes to an hour and a half. So they're certainly, you know, more longer than any blog could possibly be. So anyway, uh, and if you listen to it on double speed, as I listen to myself, it's only like a half hour. So there you go. All right. Thanks, folks. Thanks, everyone. Five stars. Rate us. Uh, follow Ben. Follow Elizabeth. Check out their Elizabeth's podcast, Murder, She Woke. Um, and uh, and uh, hire Ben to take pretty pictures of you if you are in the Delmarva area. Um, and we will hear from you next week, or you'll hear from us, rather, on Garden Views. Ciao. From marijuana Surrounds me like a sauna When I get with you, I wanna Tell the world how much I love ya I am a cannabis man Got a joint in each of my hands Mexican or Panama red This true love will never end Makes me feel just like an iguana. I know I like you like no other. In the morning, I'm always looking for you, man. I am.
I'm a cannabis man once again. Got the grass in the back of my van. Columbia, North Sansomnia. with marijuana feel it in my balls man so many kinds of this skunky mama she is my prima donna i am a mary jane man smoke a bong or aluminum can let's light up this giant slip roll them up we'll hot box it Get some marijuana, headed down to Tijuana, driving in a van that's made of ganja, just to prove how much I love ya. I am the Prince of Pot, got the river inside my sock. Northern lights are purple power, oh, how I love this flower. 